City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City Limits. Right, okay, City Limits, that was the theme song, and here we are. It's the third Wednesday of the month. It means it's Housing Day. Emma Warren's in the studio with me, and Nikki Stott, who part of the Earth Matters team on 3CR's pressing button. Is she still, or is she giving me a story? Nikki, say something. Well, I, I, I have sort of been back just in the last couple of months yeah. as a guest presenter, but I um, heard you the I'll other week do one, yeah. Yeah, and the... Uh, very talented Corey Green will be rejoining the ah, team. Took good. a bit of a break oh, for three months. Right. Good, good. She normally yeah. sits where you're sitting now on this program, yes. but she's involved with the Bricky Show this week yeah. down at down at Foe. So yeah, she... we're just interchangeable, Corey. Yeah, and that's I. right. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And both do great jobs on Earth Matters. Earth Matters, of course, is Sunday morning at eleven o'clock, isn't it? I've got to get the time. Yeah, right. eleven eleven, 11 a.m. Yeah, that's right. Um, it follows the um, the Latin American program. That's right. Um, okay, and uh, I'm Kevin Healy. If I didn't mention that. I'm sure I didn't, and no, no one cares anyway. Who cares? <laughs> What's it matter? Um, anyway, Emma, Emma, you've got a guest today coming on, or we've got a guest yes. that you've teed up, um, Tenant Union. Yes, yeah, Elle Caspi is coming on, um, and she's going to be talking about the review of the um, Tenancy Housing Tenancy Act, and we'll also be talking about um, boarding rooms and boarding houses and a bill that is being... Um, Passed in legislation in um, Parliament at the moment. Right, okay. Now, oh, cup of tea, Emma, a cup I'd of tea. I love one. Okay, I'll just sit here and pour. Here we go. Nikki, Nikki's knocked back out tea, by the way. And so was Squishy, her dog. So there's some of the background noises this morning could be Squishy, Squishy. <laughs> the dog. Yes, he's in the corner there uh, behaving. Is it himself or herself? I didn't look. Uh, he's, he's a boy. He'll, he's he's yeah. a boy. Okay, well, himself, <laughs> behaving himself. <laughs> He heard his name, so now he's yeah, coming right. to say hello. In. That's right. Morning, Squishy. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least we got one listener, I suppose. Um, the, uh, look, a couple of things I wanted to mention before. Also, of course, Housing with the Aged Action Group did come in on this day, and about half past nine or so, I spoke. I, I rang yesterday. April got back to me last night because she's got she's got a nasty virus at the moment. But either she'll come in or ring in, or someone from there will do one of those things. So they'll also be involved in the last half of the program. So there we are. Well, first thing I wanted to mention, though, this is just one of those mad stories from the United States. This woman called Jamie Gilt, the 31-year-old gun advocate, put out online boasting about her toddler's shooting prowess, this four-year-old kid. And the next day, the kid proved it. He shot her in the back um, as she was driving along. The kid was playing with the gun in the back seat, little toy for the kid to play with, and bang, he shot his mum, who's last heard fighting for her life. But... uh, I suppose that's how it goes if you believe in such things and uh, she and believes she, in such things. she was things. a real vocal advocate for guns as well, wasn't yes, she? Yes, yes, yeah. that's right. <laughs> well, we're using past tense. I think he is still alive, but probably only just. And although mm. I've probably, for the sound of what she advocates, she's probably been brain dead for years. Um, another one I wanted to uh, just pass mention in terms of such things of people's health and caring about them, like shooting them, um, 
A woman called Alison Watkins, she was involved in, she's one of the highly esteemed CEOs in Australian industry, and she runs Coca-Cola Amatil. And Amatil, of course, up until a few years ago, was the maker of a number of the the best-selling, the big-selling, anyway, never called best, um, cigarette brands. Mm. And they've, they've, they've moved into um, Coke and they've moved into junk food and sugary-laden drinks, etc., etc., and, but at last, I don't know how this story managed to be there, but on page three of the Financial Review, review last Friday, uh, she's a story that she's advising her daughter, Grace, to keep her options open in business, etc. Grace is a 23-year-old graduate just starting work with um, Price Waterhouse, one of the big four accounting firms in yeah, the world yeah. that you know runs so much and, and give great advice on tax to companies. <laughs> And I thought, well, if you're giving a daughter advice and you run Coca-Cola Amatil, the one thing, the top of the list to me would be don't touch anything my company makes if you you consider your health. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And on that, there's been a move to... um, a move that there was a speaker here last week called Marion Nessel, uh, author of Soda Politics, saying that we should identify sugar levels in terms of teaspoons on drinks that should be mm. labelled, and talking about all the problems of you know high sugar mm. beverages. The Beverage Council came out and said it was unfair to single out soft drink. Consumers should instead be educated about a balanced whole diet. That's what McDonald's and everyone say: yes, balanced whole balanced. diet, which includes apparently drinking about ten spoons of sugar in one sip. Um, but I, I found it also fascinating that the woman, she's the New York University professor, this woman who came here, the author, Marion Nessels. There's, mm. no, there's no acute thing on the E, so I'm assuming no she's connection not... No connection to Nestle. Not, she's not pronounced Nestle, but yeah. I thought it was interesting. The woman whose name could be pronounced Nestle was saying this because, of course, Nestles, in, in fact, runs so many of the... Um, well, so many of those sort of foods. Plus, also, yeah. of course, it runs... Um, a lot of the um, the wa- bottled water products. Okay. So Perrier, which is um, everyone regards as elite French, is actually Nestle. Okay. Uh, San Peregrino, the Italian one yeah. that people think is Italian, is Nestle. Yeah, that's Nestle. Most of them are. And they've been convicted in many in, in Africa in a couple of mm. countries for destroying waterways and destroying yeah. arterials, etc., etc. Yeah. So there you are. I just thought I'd mention that. Uh, another one, I, uh, this is what I found fascinating as well. You'll be pleased to know, and this comes from a reverend gentleman, Father Grant, Father James Grant. He's a, an Anglican priest. We might have retired, but it's good calling him Father here. And he's attacking the church for picking on such on on, on issues that aren't to do with the church, aren't to do with mm. the faith, don't affect the people in the pews. Things like um, things like um, well, obviously immigration's a big one. Uh, but he also talks about supporting David Hicks, uh, opposing um, opposing people eating eating uh, dolphin friendly or not, you know, it's, yeah, opposing uh, catching dolphin friendly tuna, etc., etc. Um, he he, um, he he's he's quite antagonistic to that, and he said this is a reverend person said this, the refugee policy we have is very generous. Is that what he yes, said? Yes, the Reverend Grant said this. Hmm, it's not as if we're monsters bizarre. locking everybody out. It's not as if we're saying immigrants and refugees are not welcome. Exactly the opposite. But you never get that message from the churches. I wonder how many people on Nauru or Christmas Island or Manus hmm. Island would consider that, that we're exactly the opposite. We're, yeah. yeah, we're welcome and exactly the opposite. Not sure how many. No. I just thought I'd finish this by pointing out that he... he, he um, he was a former Melbourne Anglican priest. Well, they're still calling him father. I don't know why. Uh, but 
he is now an adjunct fellow with uh, the Institute of Public Affairs. So that oh, might okay. <laughs> that might very well explain his position. Uh, right, look, Shane McGrath's on the line from Hague. What we'll do is, um, Shane, if you're listening, I presume you are because you're on the line, could you ring back at about 9.35? Is that possible? Because we have got another guest lined up for now. Um, yeah, we, we sort of said... Scheduled it in for about 9.30. So, Shane, if that's okay, um, if you could ring back about 9.35, we'd love to hear from you. Thanks a lot. Okay. okay. Yeah. And we'll go uh, to... Yeah. yeah. Um, so at about 9.10, yeah, okay, we'll do that. Just one more I did think <laughs> worth mentioning. Um, Greg Combay, the former um, the former ACTU secretary, actually, he was secretary, of course, and played a very good role during the maritime dispute here in the late 90s. Um but Greg then became, of course, a minister in the Labor government. He now presumably is on a parliamentary pension. He's recently had a job, a part-time job, with the West, with the South Australian government, um, trying to bolster the the effects of the automotive industry closing and uh, and and bolster it up, etc. And his part-time role was paying ninety-five grand a year part-time mm. on top of his parliamentary pension. One assumes, and what he's got over the years. But he's now moving from there. He's moving back to Victoria to become an advocate uh, and encourage the defence industry in Victoria so we can create jobs. So he's going from ACTU Secretary defending workers to now wanting workers to build things that go out and kill other workers. Isn't that wonderful? Manufacturing Uh, jobs. Yes, manufacturing jobs in in, in In killing people. In a terrible era. In killing people, yeah. Yeah. Um, So there you are. I just thought I'd mention that about Greg. Look, let's take a break, come back, and we'll go to our first guest who is our... What's her second name again? Caspi. Caspi. Yep. Okay. (laughs) Okay, um, welcome to City Limits and welcome El Caspi. Hello. Hi, thank you. Hi, thank you for coming on. Um, Thanks for having me. So I think we're going to talk about a couple of things today. Um, Kev, did you have um, the relevant, that article that you wanted to bring up? Well, there was that one, yes. I suppose before we go on to the Residential Tenancies Act, there was an article, of course, in The Age on Monday this week, I think it was, about slumlords and the most terrible conditions mm-hmm. people are living in. And um, there's been sub, there's been earlier articles uh, in other papers about the same problem. This whole question of of illegal rooming houses and people living under the most awful conditions. And in one case, it pointed out they were paying much more for the the total income for the landlord was much more than the landlord would get if it was just rented out normally. Um, this is clearly a major problem. L. L. By the way, is from the Tenants Union. In case we weren't aware, yeah. Mm. Mm, yeah, that's right. So there's a there's a huge issue in the rooming house industry, I guess, with um, with rooming house operators behaving in certain ways, and and I guess really exploiting vulnerable people and making a lot of money um, money money out of them, which is really unfortunate. Um, there's actually a bit of legislation that's going through Parliament at the moment, though, that's hopefully going to make a bit of an impact um, in this industry. At, and it's hopefully it's going to implement a, a fit and proper persons test for rooming house operators. Yeah. And so what that means is that to be able to operate a rooming house, um, they would need to pass a certain certain criteria. So they wouldn't have been able to be um, found guilty for certain criminal offences. Mm-hmm. And also, um, they wouldn't have been, if they've breached any relevant. If they've been convicted of a breach of any relevant legislation to do with rooming houses, then they wouldn't, they won't be able to get a license. Yeah. And we're hoping that that will help to clean up the industry um, to some degree. 
I read that a lot of these rooming houses are being um, operated from overseas and advertised over the internet. That must make it quite difficult to kind of monitor and um, track what's going on. Mm. Well, it's interesting because so rooming houses, they're meant to be um, registered through their local council. Yeah. But we know that there's a large number that aren't registered and it, and it's really up to the councils to, to try and monitor that, which can be very difficult and mm. particularly... There's a lot of resourcing issues. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting. So the ones that have been reported about in the news have, have been focusing on international students. Mm. And there's also a lot of generally rooming houses. They house people who can't access the private rental market for whatever reason. And so it's generally um, single people, but also they may have children. But there's... Um, so they're generally low income, may have complex needs, they may be exiting institutions, that kind of thing. They're often referred to rooming houses through homelessness services and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's quite a wide population that's affected. And those who are referred, I assume, would be referred to ones that are, that are registered, but these ones that we're talking mm-hmm. about are not registered. How, how are people becoming aware of them? So, there's ex- so often uh, operators will run multiple rooming houses and they may be there's a, a bit of a system where they'll they'll get referrals in through through the homelessness services and then they'll sort of move people in through to their unregistered rooming houses mm. um so that that's something that can that happens quite commonly but also i think with the international student markets there are just sort of there are websites that specific websites these, yeah yeah, either specific websites or even just on, you know, just standard websites oh, okay, gum that advertise rooms, that kind of thing. Because yeah. it's, it's, there is a bit of a grey area between rooming houses and, say, share houses and someone who may see an ad, they might not necessarily know mm. if it's a rooming house or the conditions that, yeah. I guess, that are being advertised. And because of the affordability issues in the rental market, people often don't really have another choice. Yeah. Um, and but the thing is that they're often paying really high rents anyway for these rooms. I think the ones in the in that article from Monday were were quoted at 120, but I think even quite standard is you know up to 230 dollars to be paying to live in these places that are often really have really appalling conditions and, and mm. are quite unsafe. Yeah, and overcrowded as well. So yeah, that's right overcrowded and dangerous because yeah. of that there's you know makeshift makeshift rooms and, and there may not be enough yeah um, passageway for evacuation and that kind of thing and and this is what's really brought about this fit and proper persons test which mm. has been a long time in the making um and really sadly in i think it was in 2006 there was a fire in a rooming house mm. in brunswick and two people actually died because of the unsafe nature of the rooming house and um, as a result of that, there was a, a rooming house standards task force that was set up mm-hmm. by the government and also um, a community campaign around it. And some of the recommendations that came out of that was to have this type of licensing scheme for operators so that there's a bit more accountability in the industry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, there's been complaints about this going on for years, of course. There was an incident in uh, in Sydney Road, Brunswick, above a pizza hut a few years ago, and what, four or five years ago, mm, I suppose, I think- when a couple of people actually got burnt to death in a, in a fire in one of these places. Um, yeah. That's- yeah. Um, you know, it, it drags on. Is there... 
there obviously is, is pressure on not to do anything about it from some quarters. Well, I guess you could say that. It's, it has been a long time coming and we're really happy to see it get to where it is finally now. It has probably mm. been too long coming, but it's, it's so this bill is going through Parliament at the moment. Um, it'll be just debated in the Upper House next week and I guess we'll really see at that time how it goes and, and where the support's coming from, but we are really happy that, it's, that it is coming through now, um, mm. at least. Mm. And where are these rooming houses mostly? I know a lot are in the CBD, which is catering to the international students, but um, mm. where are they in the inner suburbs or outer suburbs or everywhere? <laughs> yeah, they're really spread throughout all, all suburbs. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of rooming houses. So I think it was, it, it's hard to get the exact number, but mm. I think there's, around 11 or 1200 registered rooming houses in Victoria and then that number would probably double or or more so if you um take into account the unregistered unregistered rooming yeah as well yeah and that caters for the numbers of residents as well is it's a bit hard to um determine the exact numbers but mm. in the 2011 census there were they counted um, about 4,400 residents, but there's, there's mm. been other estimates that that's more like 12,000 mm. or 13,000 mm. uh, people, actually. Mm. And are they increasing as we are facing more issues with housing affordability? How are how are these two mm. things kind of playing off each other, do you think? Yeah, so I think that that's really where this industry has um, come about in the way that it is now, these sort of small rooming houses um, private operators it's really um, I guess it's as a result of that affordability issue because there yeah. are so many people that can't afford to enter the private rental market and there's just not enough social housing or mm. affordable housing available that, yeah. that these is really the last the last resort for a lot of people yeah. because there's more nowhere else to go yeah it, yeah mm which is really unfortunate. If there are, and I imagine there are in this new act that's going through, uh, certain conditions laid down and standards, um, is that likely to force a lot of these people out? Either they'll go more underground or they'll simply say we can't afford to keep maintaining this and we have to provide facilities of that sort. Yeah, well, there, so there are rooming house standards that, are, that came into force, I think, in 2011, and... So they provide, you know, just the just basic standards, including that it's clean and safe and and, mm. and that sort of thing. Um, but the trouble is that there's there's just not that accountability, and mm. people aren't um, generally aren't sort of um, complying with those laws. So we're hoping that this bill will force people to comply to some degree. But but that is, there has been backlash from the um, rooming house operators that say that they they simply won't be able to manage with that burden of, of providing a safe and clean place for their residents. It's a bit um, ridiculous. So, <laughs> but, it's, you know, it's hard to know. It's a business that they're running and it yeah, seems it's to a be business. profitable at the moment yeah. and you would think that they it would still remain profitable if they were... Mm. Um, being a little bit more accountable, so mm. I guess only time will tell. There, that is a bit of a trade-off in terms of we want people to have somewhere to live, but there may be, need to be some closures of 
real um, problem rooming houses yeah. as a result. Yeah. The... the, the um Yes, the the fact that um, that people, as you say, are desperate, and when they go into, well, you mentioned most people are desperate. Do many of them come to you for any help, or they find that they're so desperate they feel we have to put up with what we're putting up with, so there's no use complaining? Yeah, well, it can be very difficult for rooming house residents to access their rights because because of that exact mm. fact. It's very easy for people to be evicted, but. At the Tenants' Union, we have um, two outreach workers that uh, work with rooming house residents, so they go out and do visits at, at rooming houses and, and um, I guess, take a proactive role in in finding out what sort of issues people are facing mm. and, and working out how to help people because it is they're in a, um, a really vulnerable position where it's very hard for residents to be able to... Um, to access those rights, and which is yeah really unfortunate, and that's I guess part of the reason why operators are able to get away with what what they are because mm. they have so much power in the yeah. situation, and they're very easily able to intimidate residents. They're able to um, evict tenants very easily, and yeah, often these people don't have anywhere else to mm. go. Mm. A lot of these tenants on the public housing waiting list, and the rooming house is kind of like an interim before they get into public housing. In some cases, people yeah. are generally, I think in a rooming house, people are still classed as, as homeless, but yeah. yeah, people are definitely um, either waiting. And the trouble is that they can't access moving on to the private rental market we you wanted to talk about this new act that's going through for residential tenancies can you explain a bit about that to us yeah so it's actually a review of existing legislation so the residential tenancies act which is the major bit of legislation that outlines all the rights and responsibilities of tenants and landlords is currently being reviewed by consumer affairs victoria and so what we would say is that it's the current act, there's a lot of issues with it. It's not necessarily working for tenants as well as it can. Um, there's an inherent power imbalance between tenants and landlords and the act isn't doing all that it can to, mm. I guess, protect the rights of tenants and enable them to be able to access their rights. And so we're really hoping that there'll be some significant reform that will really uh, benefit tenants. Yeah. Do you think, I um, read that... Um, you were looking into the viability of longer-term leases so people yeah. can lease and have more stability? Yeah, so that's a focus that um, the government has really had coming into this mm. review. Yeah. And it's a bit of a complex issue, actually. It's yeah. something that we're a little bit unsure of just because um, the, 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 I guess it really depends on, on how that comes into play. Mm. So at the moment, you're... At the moment, you, you can get a lease of up to five years under the Act, but it's just not common practice that that occurs. Yeah. And that seems to be it's not something that landlords are really that keen on mm. and, and maybe that's why that's not really happening. So mm. it would be interesting to see how they would try and implement longer-term leases. Mm. Um, there's also issues where... Well, tenants, they're a diverse group of people and, yeah. and some tenants want that stability, others kind of want a bit more flexibility. Yeah, yeah. But if um, if there are sort of longer term, if they're going to be fixed term agreements, there'd need to be certain safeguards as well against, um, say, rent increases yeah. and that kind of thing that yeah. during that period. And, and if a tenant does need to leave 
you know, they might lose their job or get a new job or need to mm. move for whatever reason, if there's going to be significant penalties to then move, that's going to be quite a barrier for, for tenants and it, and it might not necessarily be um, that beneficial. Mm, yeah. So we've sort of focused a bit more on, on other aspects yeah. of the Act that may improve, I guess, that security in the housing rather than longer leases just mm. because it, cause it is such a difficult and complex issue, yeah. I guess. Mm. And of course, the level of rents just keep going up and up. Although the the poor old mark people in the market say, "Look, it's going down a bit this year. It's awful." But uh, re- in reality, there must be so many people who either can't afford it or it takes so much of their income that they've got stuff all mm-hmm. over. Yeah, that's right. There's a there's a high proportion of people that are paying that are in rental stress or mm. paying more than thirty percent of their income in rent. I think it's about. Uh, almost 40% of renters, I think, are paying, um, yeah, over 30% of of their income on mm. rent. So it's, that's a really difficult one. And, and that's, that's a hard one as well to cover with this Act. But um, I guess it's something that we can always put in our opinion on and, and what needs to happen in terms of, of rent. But, it, yeah, it is, it's a, it's affordability, I guess, is at the heart of a lot of the issues mm. that uh, that really constrain the rental market. Yeah. What are the what are, in terms of people coming to the tenants union seeking assistance? What are the main issues that you tend to, heal, mm. to deal with? So I think our the most common issue is actually repair issues. So people who are having trouble getting their landlord to to do the repairs that they need in their house. Uh, that that's the most common. There's um, a lot of reasons, so I guess getting their bonds returned, um, people who may have been given a notice to vacate um, for different reasons and, and need help with that. And also privacy issues, mm. um, getting their privacy and quiet enjoyment breached by their landlord um, and have questions around that. I think they're sort of the main, the most common issues anyway. And mm. so that's something I guess we're trying to incorporate mm. into our feedback into this review. Mm. Where is that and process at now? Um, have you did consultation yeah. last year? Yeah, so it's the review started last year. It's quite yeah. a long process. So the department's releasing six issues papers to yep. cover different topics. The first one was about security of tenure. Yep. And then... There's one. There's an issues paper out at the moment on rent and bonds, mm-hmm. and then there's going to be four more issues papers over the next few months um, that they're calling for input um, into. Mm-hmm. And are they accessible online? Can people the issue issues papers? Yes, they are. So they've launched a website. It's called Fairer Safer Housing. Yep. And so all the papers can be found there, and they've also got. Um, polls and discussion boards and that kind of thing they're really trying to be as interactive as possible and yeah so if anyone out there wants to you know provide any of their own experiences or or feedback into it definitely welcome i've noticed that on the discussion boards they seem to be dominated by landlords so it'd be great (laughs) to have more tenant voices in there (laughs) and so you don't necessarily need to write a whole um, submission. Mm. Um, you can either yeah get into the discussion boards, or there's even a bit to sort of put your story through. So if you've yep. you know had a uh, trouble with your rental or any kind of things that you've thought about, definitely encourage people to to put in their their voice there. 
Alrighty, fantastic. Yeah. Okay, and, and also, of course, um, last week that giant mind of an immigration minister we've got, Peter Dutton, uh, said that, I don't know why he came onto this subject, but he said that uh, the Labor's negative gearing policy would destroy the economy as we know it. The country would be in ruins. Uh, did your heart by the day bleed for landlords, El? <laughs> <laughs> yes, there's been a lot of, you know, scare tactics coming out in that debate. Um, it's been, yes, quite an interesting debate to watch, but unfortunately, uh, yeah, the I guess the, the property industry has a lot of power in, in that debate and that um, that may end up shaping the result of it, which is, yeah, unfortunate. Do you, as part of your work, advocate for much more public housing across the board to, to overcome all of these problems? Mm. Yeah, definitely. So we... we um, see a lot of public and um, community housing tenants, but we definitely do believe that there needs to be a lot more funding going towards increasing social housing. Victoria actually has the lowest number of um, social housing mm. properties in all of Australia, yeah. and I think we spend the, the lowest amount of all the states and territories in Australia. Mm. And it's yeah, it's not good enough at all. It's, there needs to be a lot more funding. It just needs to be prioritised and, and funding needs mm. to be put into mm. it. And a lot of, we keep talking about it on this program, but there's another major one at the moment, but a lot of public land is handed over to private developers and suddenly become private developments when they could have become public housing in the mm. first place. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, a tru- uh, it's a difficult one and there's, mm. it's, you know, land... That is an issue that um, mm. that can be very difficult, I guess, for being able to put in that funding mm. to build new housing just because land availability and the afford, mm. I guess, the, the amount that, that land costs. But it just um, is something that really needs to be mm. focused on. And I guess they're, often there's, they're trying to sort of be innovative and, and, and get the funding to be self-sufficient, but mm. it's the trouble is it's never going to be self-sufficient if they're providing housing for people who need housing. Mm. They're going to need to put that money in themselves. It can't be funded mm. through. Yeah. Is that through part of the, um, just quickly, the inclusionary zoning? Which um, mm. Can you just explain that if you know very much about it? Yeah, so um, inclusionary zoning, I guess, is a, a bit of a, a planning tool to get Term, more yeah. affordability yeah. housing, affordable housing. So um, it, it's when there's new developments, it, it's a there's generally like a a percentage that needs to be put aside for affordable housing. So yeah. it might be you know five percent of the buildings that are built they need to be dedicated to be affordable housing. Yeah. Now that's something that the Victorian government have said that they were they would. Um, undertake a trial mm. of inclusionary zoning. It, that hasn't happened yet. Okay. Um, there are other states that have inclusionary zoning, so mm. South Australia, and and I guess it's just one mechanism that can contribute to the overall affordable housing mix, mm. um, which you know is better. It's definitely not you know the silver bullet to no, solve no. The housing you know the housing crisis, but it's definitely a tool that can be used and. Um, and we'd like to see that trial begin, I guess, and, and potentially it be um, rolled out across the board. But 
And, of course, affordability is a relative thing, isn't it? I mean, it's a quite different aspect. Mm. Affordability to, say, James Packer would be quite different <laughs> to affordability to someone stuck in a rooming house we've been talking about. Uh, uh, yeah, that's right. And that's why, yeah, the devil really is in the detail of that as well because it sometimes, I think, it depends on the life of that property as well. It may often, with these inclusionary zoning um um, systems they they might say you know for the next five or ten years that property needs to be affordable but after that it can go to market right and that's not something we would like to see it needs to really be in for the long term because otherwise it's not it's not really it's not really doing anything Mm. all right but look we're gonna have to wind up but um l um if people want to contact the tenants union can give us the details Sorry, you just broke up a little Sorry, bit. Sorry, okay. Did I, always, people say that to me all the time. Um, the, uh, that, if people want to contact the tenants union, contact numbers, etc. Oh, yes. Okay. Well, you should go to the tenants union website, which is tuv.org.au, and there you'll see um, our numbers for for our helpline. So I'll... And you can all, there's also our address because we've got a drop-in centre if people mm-hmm. need advice. And then we've also got our helpline. Mm-hmm. I'll give the number over um, over the phone now. Mm. Though. So if if anyone has any tenancy issues, they should call this helpline. And the number is 03 9416 Okay, just repeat that again for people who now got pens in their hands. <laughs> <laughs> so it's 03 9416 2577 and if you need any more information it's all on our website which is tuv.org.au yep all right all right thank you yael for coming on it was great to have a chat with you great thanks emma and thanks kevin okay thanks yael bye all All right we'll take a quick break shane mcgrath's on the line i mistook what he was on the line for earlier i think and we'll um we'll we'll talk to him after a break we'll take a quick break and uh, give listeners a bit of a reprieve and then we'll come back and have a yarn to shane mcgrath who of course is from the housing for the aged action group okay and shane mcgrath is on the line shane from the housing with the aged action group shane your title there again i keep forgetting of this one oh they call me the tenancy worker (laughs) that's why you're here today i keep forgetting that (laughs) good uh you you listened to that last interview any comments before we move on to other things Oh, well, I mean, I think it's great that you played the, the ruminations ad just then because if anyone is interested in what's happening in rooming houses in Victoria, that is absolutely the best place to go. It's a show by and for people who live in rooming houses. Um, noon's on Thursday. Uh, and, you know, there's nowhere like 3CR where you can get that sort of from the source information about exactly what's happening for people in, in Victoria. Mm, indeed, Dale Bridge, who panelled on this program for many years, was part of that program. Yeah, and, right. Uh, yeah. Um, all right. And, um, well... On the question of uh, these these stories coming out about rooming houses, have you got any any comment on that? I mean, they, it does sound pretty horrific. Yeah, I mean, it absolutely is pretty horrific. The, it, uh, but not only is it horrific, it's it's the predictable consequence of the government consistently failing to invest in public housing. Mm. The the government for for decades now has pushed uh, poor people I- into the private market to look for housing. They they won't get out of the public housing business as much as they can, and. Throughout history, we've seen the only way that the market provides for poor people in terms of housing is slums. Mm-hmm. So you have slums or you have public housing, but if you push people out of public housing, if you if you let the public housing system degrade, if you let 30,000-plus people build up on the public housing waiting list, that's a recipe for slums. 
Yes, and um, what about is the new act going to change anything? Because they've done a yeah. You know, there's been a few over the years. I mean, I know we were trying to save rooming houses in Fitzroy going back several decades, and uh, and we did save one rather well, um, Osborne House, but the others, most of the others, went by the wayside. But so so governments have addressed this issue time and again, yet we don't seem to be getting over the problems. Yeah, I mean, uh, I guess there's two things. There's the fit and proper person test that's coming in for rooming houses mm. or, or may or may not be coming in for rooming houses. I mean, the, the the situation is kind of so dire at this point that there's been some debate about whether it's a good idea to require rooming house operators to be fit and proper persons. And that's the low standard, you know what I mean? That's like someone who hasn't been committed of a, convicted of a crime. Yeah. Well, I don't know all the details. But well, Shane, casino owners pass that test, for yeah. instance. Yeah, I know. So... You know, we're not talking about a very onerous standard that we're yeah. going to hold people up to. Is that the only thing that you're not a criminal? No, no. There, there are, there are any requirements. Other I'm, requirements? Not sure, I'm not sure of all the details. <laughs> okay. We haven't been working on it that, that closely. Yeah. But but the standards are quite low. Yeah. But people are, some people are worried, legitimately worried, that if you exclude unfit and improper people from running rooming houses, there'll be nowhere for poor people to live. Mm. You know, the, there were debates in the homeless sector a few years ago about whether or not you should put people into unregistered rooming houses because where else are you going to put them? You know, the the options available for people are just so mm, poor. So limited. That, yeah. uh, that, you know, any changes that really, you know, any changes in the absence of a decent decent funding for public housing uh, are really going to continue to, to exclude the most marginalised people. Mm. And yet, as I said in that, you probably heard I asked that question, we, we continually see large slabs of public land turning up in the hands of developers being flogged off yeah. and the government the government often saying, well, we, we, we ask them to provide a certain percentage of so-called affordable housing in parentheses. So yeah. Surely not good enough. I mean, absolutely not. The you know, for decades the government's been trying to figure out a way that the the private market will provide de- adequately for for poor people, poor people's housing, and, and it just doesn't. I mean, we've seen this time and time again. The only thing that's ever worked is public housing, and now the government likes to talk. You know, talk a lot about innovation. We want innovation in the homelessness sector, and when they say you know it sounds good, innovation sounds like a good thing. But what they mean is we know what works. We know that public housing is what works, and we're not putting any money into that. So come up with mm. another solution. Mm. It's, it's the most insane thing that you can imagine. Yes, and we had a. There was an article in the Age in the last. Uh, was it this week? Sometime recently, uh, Tuesday, March eight. So it was a week ago. That story about Lady in the Van, the movie, inspiring people to to um, recognise this is a major problem. Yeah. And again, most of these people seem to fall under the auspices of the Housing for the Aged Action Group. They're mostly older people, but some pretty horrific stories of pensioners and people forced to live in cars and to live mm. in pretty yeah. awful conditions. Yeah, I mean, it's something that we see fairly often. And it's definitely not only older people who mm. are forced to live in their cars, but, but yeah, I mean, it's again, it's a predictable consequence of having an inadequate housing system. Mm. Mm. And in fact, um, a woman from Wishon um, said that, uh, which is for women's information support and housing in the north, in case those that weren't aware, um, said that one of the major problems is the issue of older homeless women, mm. um, which is something I suppose that comes before you quite a, quite regularly. Yeah, I mean, we've we've been kind of uh, waving that flag for a while, and it's good to see that it is getting some traction. Um, you know, older women, because 
because of the wage difference throughout their lifetime, because they're likely to have taken time out from employment to, to raise children, yeah, yeah. because they haven't accumulated the same sorts of amounts of superannuation, yeah. uh, they're less likely in a divorce to end up with a, with a home. Mm. All of these, you know, this combination of factors, um, all, older women are, are, you know, sometimes described as kind of the new face of poverty. Mm. Uh, and that's something that, you know, policymakers are going to have to take, start taking seriously. Um, there were some proposals on International Women's Day from uh, the YWCA in New South Wales about, you know, steps to concrete measures that need to be taken to, to alleviate older women's homelessness. But it's definitely mm. something that's going to keep growing until the government really starts to deal with it. Mm. Uh, oh, oh, just in. the rest of the world seems to be so far ahead with, like, public housing and kind of alternative housing, like um, affordable, you know, co-housing. Like, how are, are we kind of looking at examples from overseas and seeing how we can do things better? Um, I mean, it's hard to say. The, the government likes to look at things from overseas. Mm. You know, a lot of the focus of the, the review of the Residential Tenancies Act has been how do we compare to, to places overseas? Yep. What can we learn from them? Yeah. But, the you know, the I mean, one of the big differences between the Australian rental market or at least the Victorian rental market, which yep. is what I know reasonably well, yep. and other places that have, have better rights for renters, is that 73% of landlords in Victoria only rent out one property. Mm-hmm. That, that's in comparison to overseas in some of the jurisdictions where they have quite good rights for renters, where most of the landlords are large institutions who own a huge amount of housing. Mm, okay. So, you know, what, what we're talking about is most landlords in Victoria, uh, you know, they're relying on negative gearing. Mm. Um, they're, they don't, they're so, so finely balanced in terms of needing to get you know, the exact amount of rent they're expecting. They, they don't have money to do repairs. Mm. You know, they don't have, you know, they, they can't tolerate a, a short delay in rent but rent payments if someone's got a crisis. And it just creates a situation that's, that's even worse for tenants. I mean, you might think mm. that, you know, small-scale private landlords are, are, are better because, you know, you can imagine a personal relationship. But in fact, they, they create such precarious mm. situations for, them, for themselves out of these tax benefits mm. that... You know, it can be a, it can be terrible for tenants to have to deal with them. Mm. And in fact, we spoke to uh, Kate Shaw, who's the urban geographer and planner here at Melbourne University, um, who'd just come back from Germany. We spoke to her late last year, and she was talking about the fact that in Germany, uh, public housing renting either public or private, but private's a lot different than here, uh, is the norm rather than mm. the exception. And that the quarter-acre block syndrome here is, uh, you know, is just not the, the most prevalent thing over there. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems clear to me that, you know, Australia's going to have to look at more mixed-density, sort of, sort of middle-density yeah. housing and things yeah. like that, that there's no way that we can keep sustaining that sort of suburban sprawl as the population keeps mm. growing. But, uh, you know, I mean, the proposal's about... The Labor's proposal to, to switch at negative gearing so it only applies to new properties seems like a good step. But uh, I worry that that's still, you know, maybe so, some parts of the middle class who at the moment can't access the, the home ownership that they expected would be their birthright. You know, w- with the, the reduction of negative gearing, they might be able to get into the housing market. But it's still not going to do anything for people on really low incomes, for people on mm. welfare. Mm. You know, without... The you know changes to the Residential Tenancies Act are going to protect uh, unlikely to protect them much better than they're, they're protected now, which is not at all. Mm. Um, and, and again, you know, I don't want to sound, I don't want to keep like banging this over the, banging you over the head with this too much, but public housing is what we need. Yeah. Mm. 
And, and well, it's what we need, and we've been saying that on this program for so Forever. long, Shane. But uh, <laughs> any thoughts how we're going to get there? How we're going to influence government more to to come up with this? Because we have currently got a minister who himself worked as a public housing yeah. um, worker at one stage. Yeah, and, uh, and did run a, a any very... signs of life from him? Uh, no, absolutely not. Um, right. ran, ran quite a strong pro-public housing campaign, and then immediately on taking office, pretty much started talking about uh, handing it over to social housing providers. Which is the other big danger for public housing. Um, I mean, the Greens, to their credit, had a, a rally at Parliament House just last yeah. week about uh, in favour of public housing. Mm. Um, it's good to see there is at least you know one party who are, are considering this as a serious issue. But I mean, I don't know what the answer is. The the answer is that we need more organising. It's never been easy in Australia to organise people as tenants to to take action on their own behalf as tenants. Mm. But you know, with things like the the review of the Residential Tenancies Act, and unless there is some sort of actual progressive movement for, for rights for renters, for housing justice, then then that the review can't help but, but come back, you know, with just a, a shuffling around of the mm. the same rights and responsibilities and the same imbalances that we already see. Yeah, the um, well, the governments in recent years, of course, they had the first home buyers grant. They've had that housing affordability thing where developers have to provide a certain amount and get concessions for it, etc. But has any of that worked in terms of overcoming the broad problems? In a, in a word, no. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's the answer to that question. Then. <laughs> I mean, a lot of the government solutions are about giving people more money to either buy or to rent. You know, I mean, I think about rent assistance a lot. Mm. 100% of rent assistance goes to landlords. So essentially, mm. it, just, it just slightly drives up rental prices. The, um, you know, people talk all the time about people on welfare being, you know, parasites and scroungers. But 100% of rent assistance goes to landlords. Mm. Where's, the, where's the criticism of them for taking that government money? <laughs> And indeed, these very people, business always talks about the need to provide affordable housing and gives you ways of doing it by handing money to them. Yeah. Um, but indeed, one of their major complaints about Labor's negative gearing policy was that it would force house prices down. Now, that seems to be a bad thing when it, uh, when it happens that way. Well, I mean, there's no doubt that like a, a substantial part of the Australian population, including a substantial part of the working class, has a lot of their wealth tied up in housing. Mm. So, I mean, they, they did... The government, successive governments have absolutely backed themselves into a corner with this. Anything that brings down housing prices is going to seriously affect the, the, you know, the wealth and the expectations about you know, the, the money they would have for retirement and the assets that they've got mm-hmm. of a huge part of, of society. So I don't know. There, I mean, there's definitely not an easy answer to that. I still think that, that we do need to, to redirect negative gearing because it's not, not doing any of the things that it theoretically is supposed mm-hmm. to be doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, but yeah, I mean, it's a big but, problem. But if, I mean, if you're if you have if you're a house owner who has one house which you live in, then what that house is worth is quite irrelevant, really, because well, if you sell it, you're going to have to buy another one somewhere anyway. Um, it doesn't matter whether the price goes up or down as long as it's the one house you've got and you're living in it. Well, in I, many I mean, yeah, I mean, I don't think many homeowners see it that way. <laughs> the, um, I mean, that's true. The, the other thing is that a lot of people borrow against their homes, like mm. it's an asset that people can, can take out financing mm. on. Yeah. Um, I think that's probably true in a lot of small businesses and things like that. Um, and also, one thing we know is that the way the housing market works now, uh, overwhelmingly, uh, first-time home buyers are supported by their parents one way or the other. Mm. And I, I suspect, although I don't have figures to back this up, that a lot of that is based on 
borrowing against the, the homes that they own. Of their parents, yeah. yeah. And I can imagine a lot of um, younger people are living longer with their parents as well because yeah. they can't get into the housing market. And, yeah, is has is that happening? More people are living with their parents for a longer period of time? I, I, I mean, I suspect that's true. I think mm. there are statistics that bear that mm. out. But, you know, I, I work for Housing for the Aged Action yeah, Group, yeah, so yeah, I'm not yeah, that sure what young people <laughs> are doing. <laughs> right. Most of your clients aren't still living with their parents. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Can I just go to one other area because um, uh, we had a talk, we discussed last week. Um, we talked to the um, Consumer Law Protection. Whatever the, I can't think of their name now, but with that mm. group anyway, um, the that Consumer Law Group um, about about utility prices. Um, mm. are, are you increasingly finding that a problem you have to address with with your clients? Oh yeah. Um, I mean, so many of our clients are looking at, you know, which bills they can afford to pay, which Mm. medications they can afford to skip, especially in winter, definitely 100% worse in winter. Um, You know, the the kinds of hardship plans that utility providers are supposed to have to to allow people who are, you know, who have low incomes or fixed incomes to to keep receiving their supply of utilities just seems so inadequate, so so little awareness about that. Um, Yeah, I mean... We're coming in. We're going to be coming into winter now, and I definitely expect to be hearing more and more from people about how they can't afford their utility bills. Mm. And, and that covers all of them because they all become gas, which people considered that it's always been considered gas, hot water, gas heating uh, was cheaper, but it's now beginning to compete, uh, not by the other one coming down, but by it going up, of course. Yeah, and I mean it's compounded for people. You know, people on low incomes end up in in poor quality housing as a rule when they mm. you know, when they're in the private market. The appliances in those in there are inefficient. Mm. So, you know, they try and save money by... Well, not even save money, but they try and find a house they can afford and it drives up their utility costs, which are already exorbitant, you know, in the best of circumstances, just creates the, these total cycles of, of, uh, of you know, financial impossibility. At the same time as we're, you know, desperate for public housing, desperate for spending on these issues, continually... Uh, big business is crying out for more money. Frank Lowy this week, uh, one of our richest people, uh, says government should invest in infrastructure and offset the cost by then selling it to the private sector when it makes money, um, which is a pretty um, pretty sensitive thing to do. Um, AGL has come out and, and said the government should come up with a system where it can buy out uh, old coal plants and just hand the money over to them because because they need incentives to get out of uh, fossil fuels. And we're seeing, even with this desalination plant getting down to, again, utilities like like fossil fuel and this, uh, we pay them $607 million each year just for sitting there, and now they have to, they're literally having to get the cobwebs out in case we need some water. But we've got to pay more if we actually want the water. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems to me sometimes like the government's desperate to get out of all kinds of social services. They want mm. all social services, public, you know, housing, welfare, everything handed over to, to non-profit sort of the, the private sector itself. The only thing the government wants to be in the business of is giving money to rich people. That's the one, the one industry that they want to maintain state control over. Yes, <laughs> which is uh, which doesn't cover most of our listeners. I would, <laughs> I would <think. laughs> haven't seen a lot of it lately, anyway. Uh, but uh, yeah, and uh, sadly, I noticed that the the health services um, super fund is one of the big investors in the desal plant, right. and is rubbing its hands. But it's pretty ordinary, pretty awful, I think, when you see workers' money, in fact, going into something that perhaps it shouldn't. Yeah, well, I mean, that's just as true, obviously, on Manus Island and Nauru, where there's quite a lot of investment by industry super funds. 
Yeah, and well, City Link, of course, the uni fund was one of the big ones there originally as well. Uh, again, though, we've raised this. If 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 they are going to, if all this super money is going to be invested in these things, surely they should be directing it again towards stuff that will help workers, uh, maybe maybe assisting in in, in housing, etc. Yeah, I mean, it's not something that I've really looked at, but it does seem like, you know, it seems natural, doesn't it? But I don't know how far you would get talking to, to some of the unions about that. I have raised it um, with some of the people who are on the boards of these these things, yeah. and they keep telling me they keep thinking about it, but they've got <laughs> fiduciary duties under the Act or something, yeah. and they, which they have to observe, so they claim their hands are tied. But I would have thought there must be ways around that. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, all right, Shane. Well, look, thanks for that. Anything, anything further today to talk about? And we've been raving on about what we want to talk about. Anything you <laughs> wanted to rave about? No, that was great. It was good to get some things off my chest. Look, the, the last thing I'll say is if you are an older person and you're listening to the show in Victoria, um, basically 55 or over, yeah. you've got a housing problem of any kind, you want to talk to someone about it, uh, give us a call on one three hundred seven six five one seven eight. Okay, and just give us that number again, Shane, yep. again with people once they get the old <laughs> pen in the hand. Yeah. Okay, it's the one three hundred. Seven six five one seven eight, and don't forget also housing for the Aged Action Group has its own three CR show oh. on the fourth Thursday of every month. Oh, fourth Thursday, that's right. And tell us the time. Uh, six pm, fourth Thursday of the month. Six pm. It's like the time is really nine fifty seven, but six pm <laughs> on those dates. Okay, uh, nine fifty six on one clock. Nine fifty seven. Three CR hasn't changed. That's right. <laughs> it's one of the two, uh, <laughs> or maybe neither. Um, okay, Shane. Look, thanks for your time this morning, and we'll talk to the Hasbro A. Jackson Group again on this day next month. All right. Thanks very much. Thank okay, you, thanks Shane. For, thanks for calling in. Terrific. Okay, that's it. Uh, nine fifty. No, they've still got different times. There we are. We're uh, gone. That's it. Um, and Nikki, look, or look, we got next week is. Um, yeah, what are we chatting about next week? Wednesday. That's right. We got. I did have a thought about. I thought maybe we'll, we'll talk to you later. But I thought maybe we should talk about time to talk about tax again. Okay. And um, <laughs> and get John Passant, who's quite popular when we get him. So we'll see if we can get John next okay. week. And he's an ex commissioner of taxation who uh, who. Does, who certainly tears the economy to shreds when he Great. comes on the show. Great. So we might get him because it's a fourth Wednesday and there's no specific subject that I hadn't really, must have been, I hadn't really thought about it much other than that that thought that popped into my head. Um, Emma, look, thanks for teeing up the interview today. No problem. And um, tell you what, um, thank uh, Nikki for doing a wonderful job. Thanks, Nikki, for helping us today. It was great. It was absolutely my pleasure. <laughs> okay, and Squishy over there kept very quiet. Yeah. <laughs> totally, un- totally unimpressed by city limits. <laughs> <laughs> okay, back next week. Say goodbye. All right, bye. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia, on the Kulin Nation. For more information and to find out how you can support 3CR, go to www.3cr.org.au.